In his own words, Jesus summarized the gospel in these three statements of fact. Christ died, he was raised, and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name. This morning, as we consider how we as a church now should be investing in the advance of the gospel around the world, I want us to see, appreciate, grow in confidence in how God accomplished that work as recorded in the book of Acts. We're going to look at Christ's plan fulfilled from about 30,000 feet. We spent a long time in the book of Acts a couple of years ago, but we're going to look at it as a summary overview, looking at what Christ does through the church. As a church, we must, we must be committed to the mission of our King. I'm going to argue this morning from our text, from our look at Acts, that because the gospel leads to salvation, Christ's church must be committed to the spread of the gospel. This must stay the priority, the focus, the passion of our church family. Every member of Christ's body, every follower of Christ is to be committed to this mission. Member in our church shared this quote with me earlier this week, and I thought it was a helpful summary for all of us to hear as we think of our mission as the people of God. Paul Washer writes, My dear reader, we do not know what tomorrow will bring, but we do know what we should be doing. We must preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to every creature and to every nation under heaven, laboring with all our might in the power of the Holy Spirit, to present every believer complete in Christ, conformed to his immaculate image. This great, massive goal, this irrevocable command, this unrelenting passion, this magnificent obsession ought to be as blinders around our eyes so that we're not distracted by less meaningful tasks. It must function as a compass to keep us on a straight course. So let our ears be deaf to lesser causes. Let us risk and fight and prevail. There's too much at stake and too much glory to be gained for the name of Christ for us to turn back, loose our hand from the plow, or become distracted by insignificant things. Let us labor until his name is great among the nations. Let us give our lives until the kingdom is consummated and we behold with our own eyes a great multitude that no one can count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to, the, to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This morning, as we look through the book of Acts, especially chapters 13 and 14, Paul's first missionary journey, we'll consider first how the gospel powerfully advances through faithful proclamation. It is a word to be proclaimed, to be spoken, to be shared. And then secondly, how it advances through faithful missionary activities. First, the gospel powerfully advances through faithful proclamation. 
Jesus said to his disciples in Acts 1.8, You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the end of the earth. We said this verse provides an outline for the whole book of Acts. It entered into Jerusalem in, verses, or in chapters 1 through 7. It spreads to Judea and Samaria in chapters 8 through 12. And then it goes out to the ends of the known world at that time in verses 13 through 28. And what Luke is doing in this book, he's not telling us everything we might want to know about the church, how it's supposed to function, how it's to be ordered. He's telling us how Christ compels the gospel forward by his spirit and by his church. Now consider how the book ends. Paul has reached Rome with the desire to go even further into Spain. But we know he's under house arrest. He's awaiting his sentence from the emperor. And yet these are the final two verses. And in many ways, we said when we looked at the book, it seems like an unsatisfying conclusion. But it's exactly what I believe Luke intends. Here verses 30 and 31 again of Acts 28. Paul lived there two years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and the last three words, and without hindrance. Some scholars have said those two words encapsulate how the gospel advances through the entire book of Acts, without hindrance. Here, the premier apostle to the Gentiles has evangelized much of the Mediterranean world. He's faithful to proclaim Christ. He's planted churches. And yet now his time has come to an end. And his very last words of the book continue to serve as motivation and partial fulfillment of Jesus' command there in Luke 24. Paul was teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The last word there is a perfect description of how this message continues to advance. That's what I want us to hear well this morning. We see a world from our perspective that is a mess. It's chaotic. We see corruption, injustice, things we don't like, things that are not in order according to God's word. And yet we must not be discouraged because God is not discouraged. The mission continues without hindrance. That word with that phrase, without hindrance, means to move forward without restraint, without being cut off, without prevention, without weakness. Consider the summary statements Luke records throughout this book. In chapter 6, verse 7, we read the word of God. That is the gospel message. That's how Luke talks about the gospel. The word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Again in nine, chapter 9, verse 31, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and it multiplied. Chapter 12, 24, the word of God increased and multiplied. It's exploding outward. Again, 19, verse 20, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. 
The gospel is not ultimately dependent on any human effort. It's not dependent in chapter 28 on Paul's freedom. Before Jesus captured his heart, Paul was determined to destroy this Jesus movement. And yet in spite of his intellectual brilliance, his incredible education, his almost unlimited religious authority, he could not stop what Jesus was doing through his church. The gates of hell cannot prevail against it. I want us to look now at chapter 11, verses 19 through 26. We're going to see where the first missionaries were sent from. I want us to see the background of this church. Chapter 11, verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word, the gospel, to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. This is Antioch in Syria. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. So just in summary, all I want us to see here is that the gospel is advancing. And notice it is advancing from Jewish message only now to Gentiles. This church in Antioch then prepares to send out the first missionaries recorded in Acts. So the church of Jerusalem, by God's sovereign hand, through persecution, is spread to Antioch. And we see in these verses, it's in Cyprus and Phoenicia. And that church planted there in Antioch will now send out missionaries. So how was God doing this? What were these first century believers, churches, and missionaries committed to doing? They're doing exactly what Jesus had commanded. Let's look now at Acts chapter 13. We'll look at verses 1 through 5. Acts 13, verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. For the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. Now what is this church doing to produce missionaries like this is there some kind of secret sauce that this church of Antioch had that was sending out missionaries well let's look again in chapter 13 what are they doing 
In chapter 2, they're worshiping and they're praying fervently. They're passionate about what God is doing among them. They're practicing the ordinary means for worship that every gospel-believing church should be practicing. The Holy Spirit is using the local church to send out missionaries to proclaim the gospel. Now, as we grow as a body in exalting Christ and his commands in worship, in our worship, we should expect and pray fervently that God would accomplish his will amongst us, that he would continue to advance the gospel through us. That means that some of us are to be sent out towards missions. Who would that be? Who might that be? You see, God uses regular, ordinary, faithful churches committed to God-centered worship to thrust out workers into the harvest, both in evangelism here at home and in missions to the nations. So as we think of our responsibilities, as every believer is responsible to obey this call, who comes to your mind when you think of the unbelievers with whom you have influence or with whom you have regular contact? How are you engaging in the king's command to proclaim his name, to proclaim forgiveness of sins? And then are there some who, like Paul and Barnabas, are equipped and being prepared to go to another place to proclaim this gospel? Shouldn't we be praying fervently that he would send some of us to do this work? I want you to see what we're going to see in chapters 13 and 14 is a map of Paul's journey, his first missionary journey. And it's like he makes this big U-shape. So he's going to go around, and we're told about five specific places. He stops at several more along the way, but five specific places. And then he comes back as he comes back to Antioch in Syria, and he visits them all again. And what we're going to do is just survey what he's doing on that trip. What is his passion? What are his practices? If you read through all of chapters 13 and 14, you can get confused by all the places that Paul and Barnabas visit. It's helpful to read that section with your Bible open to a map. You might even want to highlight each city or region that Luke mentions in order to get a better understanding of how they proceed on the trip. Luke doesn't tell us everything that happens in each region or city. He stops and pauses and tells us just what he wants us to know in certain places. Now, what was their priority as they went into new regions that had not heard the gospel? It's there in verse 5. They proclaimed the word of God. And as is Paul's practice, they start with the Jews. We don't have the time to examine every part of these two chapters, but I do want us to see the content of Paul's message that Luke provides to us in chapter 13, verses 13 through 39. We'll begin reading in verse 22. And what I want you to do is pay careful attention to the things that Paul is emphasizing and see if you've not heard them before. I'll make a few comments as we read. Let's begin reading. Look at verse 22. And when, and this is Paul preaching, he's in the middle of his sermon, he's talking about Saul being the king, so he's going back through Israel's history. And when God had removed Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, 
I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Now notice how he takes the Old Testament and he gets to Jesus. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not unworthy to tie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, they fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. So what is Paul emphasizing already in this gospel message? The death of Christ. Verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. There's the resurrection. Let's listen to how he applies the passage now or his teaching. Verse 38, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Do you hear Paul echoing Jesus's command in Luke 24? He's focusing on the death, the resurrection, and forgiveness of sins. This is the gospel message. It's plain, it's clear, it's simple. This is the priority. It's the proclamation of the gospel. Do you see how Paul emphasizes those truths? And what happens? Look down now at verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord, the gospel. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed unto salvation believed. God was blessing the proclamation of the gospel. That's the priority of missions. 
The gospel proclamation brings forth much fruit at this time. And at this point, we could summarize missions this way from chapter 13. Missions in Acts demonstrates believers sent out by the Spirit through the church to proclaim the gospel to people without a gospel witness. Listen again to Paul's burden to proclaim this gospel message We heard it read in our scripture reading. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Paul reiterates this again in Romans 15. He says, from Jerusalem and all the way around Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. Not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see. And those who have never heard will understand And later Paul will say in that chapter, it is his ambition to make it all the way to the uttermost parts of the world. And for him, that's Spain. Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Now this seems obvious. But I think for most of us, much of the time, as we go through ordinary everyday life, we lose sight of the power of God unto salvation. We conflate the message Or we think it's all these other things. But what I want you to see in Acts is it's one thing about one person. This week I came across the story of Adoniram Justin. He was the first American missionary and he would undergo great persecution in Jesus' name. He was the first Christian ever to go into Burma. After a painful life of ministry which included the loss of his wife and several children, even years where he didn't see converts at first, he would leave in the end over 7,000 Burmese believers. His testimony is fascinating to the power and a testament to the power of the gospel. See, Judson was raised in a Christian home. But when he went off to college at Brown University, he was lured away from the Christian faith by a fellow student and close friend, a young man named Jacob Eames. Eames was a philosopher who rejected all revealed religion, including the Bible. Eames ridiculed the God of the Bible, and under his assaults, Judson's already fragile faith crumbled. He kept his loss of faith hidden from his parents until after his graduation, when on his 20th birthday, he announced that he was no longer a Christian. He'd been the valedictorian of Brown. He was a brilliant man, and he left for New York hoping to write for the theater there. Now, while in New York, Judson found little fulfillment, enjoyment as a playwright and grew quickly disillusioned. And in that dissatisfaction with life, God was beginning to work. One night while traveling through a small village, he spent the night at a local inn. The only available room was next door to a man who was dying. All night, the man groaned and cried out in desperation. Judson was so tormented by the despair in this man's cries that he could not sleep. He began to wonder, is this man prepared for death? That's all that really matters now. Am I prepared? His philosophy taught him that death was nothing. It was a door to an empty pit. It was annihilation. 
But that brought him little comfort now, listening to a man who was actually dying. At the same time, he could hear in the back of his mind the voice of his friend, Jacob Eames, mocking him. Really, Judson, you're this weak? Are you really the valedictorian of Brown University, spooked by a little superstitious religion? Judson laid there, tossing back and forth, wrestling with his fear and shame for having these thoughts. And yet still, the groans of a dying man. The voice eventually stopped. The next morning, as sunlight filled Judson's room, the sense of despair lifted, and Judson felt ashamed for having given in to such weakness. He got dressed, he went downstairs, and asked at the front desk about the man in the adjoining room. He's dead, was the simple reply. Judson politely asked, Do you know who he was? Oh, yes. A young man from the college in Providence. His name was Eames. Jacob Eames. Judson could hardly move. He couldn't leave the inn for hours. He later reflected on the moment. Lost. In death, Jacob Eames was lost. Utterly, irrevocably lost. Lost to his friends, to the world to that future that he had planned. Loss as a puff of smoke is lost in the infinity of air. If Eames' own views were true, neither his life nor his death had any meaning. But suppose Eames had been mistaken. Suppose the scriptures were literally true and a personal God is real. For that hell should open in that country inn and snatch Jacob Eames, my dearest friend and guide, from the next bed. This could not, simply could not be coincidence. Judson would come shortly thereafter not only to believe the gospel, but also to pour the rest of his life out for it. He suffered extraordinary things in the name of it. The gospel of Jesus was not a light thing for him. It should not be for any believer. It was weighty in life and weighty in death. It demanded the utmost attention and the most fervent devotion, and it demands the same of us today. Luke helps us see in the book of Acts that the gospel powerfully advances through faithful yet simple proclamation. Secondly, the gospel powerfully advances through faithful missionary activity. Now, what is Paul and his companions committed to doing as they go on this journey? Let's look at the end of Paul's journey here at the end of chapter 14. In just a moment, it provides a summary of his activities. Now, before we go further, I want to just have an aside and talk about what we're talking through as we're thinking through missions. We're talking about the priorities We're not saying everything that can be done about missions. We're trying to discern what is the priority. What is the main thing? You see, Acts is a paradigm, a model for what we should be committed to as we invest together in gospel advance. It advances through faithful gospel proclamation, but that doesn't mean that there's not a support, a place for support roles in missions. Look, if you look back at the beginning of chapter 13, you see that John Mark went with Paul and Barnabas in a support role. Paul and Peter and the other apostles are surrounded by helpers and fellow workers in the ministry. 
So certainly there's room and encouragement for this kind of gospel ministry. The Bible would encourage it. This also doesn't mean the only place that we should be interested in sending missionaries is to places with no Bible in their language or no known gospel work among people group. But, but, why wouldn't we prioritize those things if we're taking Jesus' word seriously? That repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations or people groups. Or Acts 1.8, it's to be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. Or as Paul puts it in Romans 15, to proclaim it where Christ has not been named. Let's look at Acts 14 now, 21 through 28. We'll see the conclusion of this first missionary journey. Verse 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city, Derbe, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch. If you remember the picture of the first missionary journey, this is their making their way back. And Luke is really encapsulating it quickly. Verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. They came all the way back to the beginning. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. They give God all the glory and they remained no little time with the disciples. So how would we summarize what we're to prioritize? What should we as a church prioritize and invest in as we partner with missionaries? First, we should prioritize what we've already seen, evangelizing. We're going to put it as three E's. These aren't original with me, but I think they're a good summary of what we're seeing in verses 21 through 23. First, evangelizing. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples. What does Luke highlight that Paul does at each stop in his missionary journey? Don't just blow past this because it's a simple answer. He preaches the gospel. We're to be clear and passionate about this. He proclaims the death, resurrection, and forgiveness found in Jesus alone. We must not lose sight of this most fundamental responsibility of believers, either here in our own neighborhoods and city or abroad among the missionaries that we partner with. Are we sharing this message? so easy for us to lose sight of that primary purpose. We have such good intentions. We have intentions to do good for others, and yet without the proclamation of the gospel, are our efforts less than Christian? We must ask that question. I've been so encouraged by how we as a church family have been growing in this understanding. You hear announced from time to time from this pulpit that we participate in the Greer Soup Kitchen. This is a wonderful outreach to meet needs in our community. But did you know that we're not the only group or organization that thinks it's a worthy time commitment? Did you know there's an atheist organization that donates time and effort to the Greer Soup Kitchen? 
So we should ask, what makes our efforts and their efforts any different? We've worked to find creative ways to give the gospel. That's what makes it different. Both in literature and verbally, in order that we might seek not just to meet a physical need, but much more importantly, a spiritual, eternal need. Tim Keller so helpfully highlights and clarifies our mission in his book, Generous Justice. In this book, he addresses the importance of believers serving the unsaved around them, both in word and in deed. It's a right biblical emphasis. And yet he offers an important point of clarification about our priorities. He says this, evangelism, speaking words, is the most basic and radical ministry possible to a human being. This is not true because the spiritual is more important than the physical, but because the eternal is more important than the temporal. If we confuse evangelism and social justice, doing good to those in need, we lose sight of the single most significant service Christians can offer to the world. Others alongside believers can feed the hungry, but Christians have the gospel of Jesus by which men and women and children can be born again to a certain hope of eternal life. We cannot lose sight of that responsibility, that privilege, that opportunity. He concludes, no one else can make such an invitation. Other things are wonderful. They are needed, but they're not primary. This is the priority we see in the book of Acts. Church family, we're to understand Christ's mission very clearly. It's not a shotgun blast, it's a rifle shot. Jesus said himself, we're to proclaim repentance for the forgiveness of sins. We must open our mouths. We cannot muster up the courage or willpower on our own. Again, we talked last week, this isn't about us and our personality or our gifts. This also doesn't mean that every interaction with an unbelieving friend has to have a gospel conversation forced into it. But it does mean that we need to be aiming in that direction and get there. You see, if you're like me, we all want to find excuses why I don't want to say something uncomfortable in the conversation. Remember, Paul wrote, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. Secondly, not only evangelizing, but equipping. As Paul's making his return trip home, verse 22 tells us he was doing these things. He's strengthening the souls of the disciples. He's encouraging them to continue, persevere in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. This is not prosperity gospel. He's taking time to teach these new disciples to obey all the things that Christ had commanded. So faithful missionary work includes the building up of believers through the ordinary means of grace, the word and prayer and fellowship among God's people. Notice as well as how opposition and persecution are just a normal part of the story of gospel advance. Wherever Paul and Barnabas went on this journey, in every new town, some people gladly accept their message and some reject it, even violently. Remember why the church in Antioch is started, according to chapter 11. 
It's because of the death of Stephen. Our sovereign God is able to use suffering, persecution, and even the death of his beloved children in unrighteous acts of murder to accomplish his purposes. The enemy may take your body. They cannot take your soul. Paul understood this with such clarity that when he's stoned here in chapter 14, he gets right back up. He goes into the same city where he was just stoned and fellowships with the disciples and moves to the next city the next day. Only the Spirit of God is able to give us such courage. And he tells us he will. Part of Paul's equipping of these believers included a biblical emphasis on suffering and persecution. Lastly, he spent time establishing churches. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. As Paul and Barnabas established churches, they appointed qualified godly leaders in each church, we're told. This was their regular practice in church after church. More than one teacher of God's word in every church. The gospel would then continue to go forward as these churches raised up more and more followers of Christ committed to proclaiming the gospel. It didn't require Paul and Barnabas to be there. It was the word that was going forward. So how are we to actively engage in Christ's mission to proclaim the gospel to all nations? As we consider our partners and future partners in gospel advance, shouldn't we prioritize these same three areas? Evangelism, equipping, and establishing churches. They're the ordinary ways that Luke tells us the gospel moves forward. Today, this would look like national pastors committed to training more men to proclaim the word. Strengthening and equipping those faithful men to be able to teach and establish more churches. So how do we apply this to ourselves? Give us four words to think about. Pray, proclaim, give, and go. The first thing a church committed to gospel's advance must do is to pray. This should be a growing priority in our own lives and in our gatherings. We want to see God's work be done. And that happens as we grow in our love for the gospel and pray for its continued advance. In your time of personal worship, do you ever pray for the gospel's advance? Are you regularly praying for those who are within your sphere of influence that you would speak boldly to them? Notice the sobriety included in this task by the repeated mention of fasting. It's not a common practice among us. We see it three times in these two chapters. As they prepare to send out missionaries, they're fasting. As Paul and Barnabas appoint elders in each church, they're praying and fasting. Perhaps we haven't considered this task to this level of sobriety yet. Secondly, we must proclaim the gospel. It's so simple that every believer, no matter how young or old, is able to share these points of emphasis. No matter what vocation God has called you, you're to share the gospel with those around you. Thirdly, as a church family, we should give to the advance of the gospel. This is an area where the Lord has been growing and strengthening us as a a church over the last several years. 
Last year, we were able to give a significant amount of money in order for Christy Colas' church to finally purchase and pay off their building. In a recent update that we'll share with you soon, she shared that they are now beginning to pray the Lord would allow them to send out missionaries. This is what we see the pattern of Acts. It's repeating itself. This is all to God's credit. And I want you to know I'm so grateful. Your, your leadership here in the church is so grateful for your overwhelming generosity. Your heart to give sacrificially to gospel causes. We're eager to invest in gospel advanced projects when our giving is above budget each quarter. You should be hearing about that. You've heard about it in our emails. You'll hear about it again in the weeks ahead. This is above what we already budget for missions and discipleship. We're excited about what God is doing in and through you as you give for these causes. And we want to make sure that's our priority, that we're seeing the gospel go forward. Finally, there may be some among us that are called to go. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? Because our habit, our tendency is to sit back and pursue security and comfort. Our Christ has called us to risk our own security and comfort, though, for the sake of the gospel. Have you ever considered going? If not, why? Why not? Are you praying that your children, other young people in the church, would be called to go? We're all called to evangelize. Some among us may be called to missions. Would you be willing to go? Deluded idiot, misguided missionary and arrogant colonizer, dumb American. These were just a few of the pejoratives used to describe 26-year-old American missionary John Chow after he was killed in late 2018 attempting to reach the most isolated tribe on the planet with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Indian authorities called Chow's evangelistic efforts to reach the unreached Sentinelese tribe on the North Sentinel Island a misplaced adventure in a highly restricted area. But a closer look reveals Chow's Christ-like compassion, extensive training and preparation, and a clear-headed conviction of his calling to the Sentinelese people. Every decision John Chow made for nine years was made with an eye toward landing on that beach. Said Voice of the Martyrs radio host Todd Nettleton, he counted the cost to answer Christ's call. He was mocked and ridiculed, not only by the press and the secular world, but even and also by fellow followers of Christ. And yet God called John Chow to the North Sentinel Island where the people have no contact whatsoever with outsiders. They've responded violently to past attempts at contact. And yet John still obeyed, preparing for the next nine years to live among them. He began preparing at age 17 for this one mission to proclaim Christ where he had not yet been named. On November 15th, 2018, John made first contact. A Sentinelese boy's boy fired an arrow at John that lodged in his Bible as he was paddling up to them, giving them gifts, trying to make a first impressionable contact. 
So John retreated. The next day on November 16th, 2018, John went ashore on North Sentinel Island for the last time. When the fishermen returned the next day to pick him up, according to the police report, they saw a dead person being buried at the shore, which from the silhouette of the body, clothing, and circumstances appeared to be the body of John Allen Chow. Nothing is known about what happened between his arrival on the beach and his death. Yet in one of the final notes he penned in his journal, he wrote, you guys might think I'm crazy in all of this, but I think it's worth it to declare Jesus to these people. Will we pray, proclaim, give, and go? Let's pray.